everybody. Welcome back to Firewall's Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Carrie Parker, and today we have episode 244 for November 1st, 2021. It is November. I cannot believe it, which means we uh, just had Halloween, and uh, I've, got, I've actually got a kind of a scary story for you for Halloween in honor of Halloween, even though it's a day late. Uh, I'll get to that in just a minute. So I got a lot of news to catch you up on today. And first of all, and, and you know, I will say this every once in a while, but just update everything. Just keep everything updated. There's so many bugs being fixed, uh, you know, in Google Chrome, Microsoft Windows, Mac OS, iOS. And some of these are really important bugs. So please just, just keep up to date. For what it's worth, I have upgraded all my devices to iOS 15.1 and Mac OS Monterey, which is already on 12.0.1. Uh, so far, no issues, you know, I mean, there's, there's always going to be some issues, but at this point, the security updates are are worth it. So anyway, keep everything up to date, folks, all those things in particular, you know, get your browsers updated, get your operating systems updated on both your mobile devices and your computers and, and turn on auto update. And that'll just make it simpler. All right. So plenty of news stories for you today. We're going to start, we're going to start off with one titled Killware. Now, if that's not a great Halloween-esque story, I don't know what would be, uh, but it's a new phrase that we're probably going to be hearing more of because it's so sensationalistic, but unfortunately it's also real. So um, we're going we're to explain what Killware is. We're going to talk about how a hacker somehow managed to steal the entire government ID database for Argentina's entire population. We're going to talk about a New York Times journalist who describes how his iPhone was being hacked. We've got actually got some good news in cybersecurity realm. The Revil or Our Evil ransomware gang seems to have really been taken out this time. And this is an interesting story with a couple twists. So we'll catch you up on that. And of course, we're going to have to talk about Facebook. <laughs> They've announced that they're changing their name to Meta. I don't know when that's supposed to take effect, but... You know, whatever. But I've got to talk about that and a couple things related to that. I've got an article interesting about how link previews, something that we all kind of take for granted now, is kind of a nifty thing. You know, you send a text message to somebody with a link and, you know, instead of showing the link, it shows you a little picture or something that, you know, about what that link is going to be pointing to. So helpful. But of course, there are privacy and even security reasons why that may not be a good idea. And then I've got a couple articles here about new uses for facial recognition. It's really, we've got to get a handle on this before it gets out of hand. Delta Airlines now has a program that they're trialing that will allow you to check your bags just by using your face. Uh, and in the UK, some schools are using facial recognition to pay for school lunches. Next up, we're going to talk about how your location data is being sold left and right. It's become a whole industry unto itself. And how it's happening even when you supposedly opt out of allowing that to happen. We're going to talk about how internet service providers have got tons of data on you. And they are perfectly willing to sell that to third parties. And why we have had such a hard time regulating that in the United States. And finally, for my tip of the week, I had one too many articles about the dangers of QR codes. Uh, so if you're a newsletter subscriber, you've already seen this. Or if you watch my blog, you've already seen this, but I really want to talk about this because it's just a, it's become a pet peeve. It, it's kind of a clickbaity headline pet peeve, but it's also more than that, particularly QR codes. So I'm going to demystify and debunk some of the, some of the hysteria around QR codes. So plenty to talk about today. Let's get to the news. <laughs> All right, first up, uh, this is an article from Adam Levin, uh, not Adam Levine, Adam Levin, <laughs> who we've had on the show before, a little blog article he wrote, it's about killware. Um, and, you know, right in time for Halloween, maybe a day late, I, with an article name like that, I think we had to talk about it. So let me just read briefly from this article so we can all understand what the term means. September 2020 proved a grim milestone in cybersecurity. It was the time that a ransomware attack was directly attributed to a death. A woman in Germany experienced an aortic aneurysm and was rushed to a hospital. She was turned away due to a ransomware attack. The woman died while being transported to another hospital. The idea of cyber attacks leading to actual physical harm or death was long thought of as more of a possibility than an actual threat. Record-breaking DDoS, or 
distributed denial-of-service attacks and ransomware attacks have successfully disabled critical infrastructure, and mega-breaches have compromised the sensitive information of millions, but the damage has largely been online and data-based. Enter Killware. Killware is a blanket term for any number of cyber attacks that are targeted at killing or damaging the real-life health of targets. Unlike most other forms of malware, which are generally defined by their method, Killware is defined by its end result. Killware was used in the attempted attack on a Florida water treatment facility earlier this year. After entering into the plant's poorly guarded system, a threat actor boosted the level of sodium hydroxide in the water by a hundredfold to lethal levels. The attack was fortunately immediately noticed by an operator, but if not for quick response, the water supply of over 15,000 could have been poisoned by a relatively simple hack. The mode of attack was remote access software, but because of the target and goal, this falls under the rubric of killware. The United States Department of Homeland Security has identified killware as a new cyber threat more urgent than ransomware. It should be noted that it includes ransomware as a category and all other modes of attack that result in mortal danger. Government agencies, hospitals, and operators of critical infrastructure are being urged to maintain cybersecurity best practices, especially when it comes to systems where a successful attack could prove life-threatening. We have entered a new phase in cybersecurity that is literally life and death, where any number of hacks can be used for the very worst purposes. It's never been more crucial to get your cybersecurity in order. So yeah, um, you know, I try not to be hyperbolic. But yeah, software controls some really important things. You know, we talk about water treatment facilities, but you know, there's also medical devices, pacemakers, insulin pumps, all sorts of devices in hospitals, just heck, just the power at, at, at hospitals and places where power losses would result in people being harmed or killed. Software is in everything today. And what's really making it more dangerous is that everything is hooked up to the internet today. This wasn't a problem before. You'd have to go into, you have to somehow infiltrate a hospital or whatever to, you know, hack at these systems to cause, to wreak havoc. But today, all these things are on the internet. And because our internet security, our network security is so poor, it's allowing these attackers to get at these things from weird angles. Like, for example, one of my favorite security stories having to do with IoT, Internet of Things, is how a casino in Las Vegas was hacked through a smart thermostat in a fish tank. Because that smart thermostat was hooked up to the Wi-Fi network and it had horrible security. So somebody was able to hack the thermostat and then get on the network and then I forget what they actually stole from the casino. And we've talked about the security of cars as well. There have been published hacks where Jeep was a famous example, but cars are now on the internet. Modern cars, most modern cars, come with built-in cellular modems, whether you pay for that service or not, as we talked about in the Privacy for Cars interview we did a, a few weeks back. And some of these car systems, you know, the entertainment system in the car should have nothing to do with the brakes. And yet, some hackers figured out ways through the entertainment system to apply brakes on a car. So, I'll, I'll, I'll one more quick mention on this, and that is Bruce Schneier wrote a book called Click Here to Kill Everybody. And he even stated when he picked that title that he meant it to be clickbaity. He meant it to be a little bit hyperbolic. But it's just not. I mean, it's a real thing. So anyway, that's a another great read if you want to pick up that book and find out more about this exact topic. So how was that for a scary Halloween story for you? All right, moving on. This is from The Record, which I don't think I've ever quoted these guys before, but it's about a database hack in Argentina. It says, a hacker has breached the Argentinian government's IT network and stolen ID card details for the country's entire population, data that is now being sold in private circles. The hack, which took place last month, targeted RENAPER, that's an acronym, which stands for Registro Nacional de las Personas, translated as National Registry of Persons. The agency is a crucial cog inside the Argentinian Interior Ministry, where it is tasked with issuing national ID cards to all citizens, data that it also stores in digital format as a database accessible to other government agencies, acting as a backbone for most government queries for a citizens' personal information. The first evidence that someone breached Renaper surfaced earlier this month on Twitter when a newly registered account named Anibal Leaks published ID card photos and personal details for 44 Argentinian celebrities. 
A day after the images and personal details were published on Twitter, the hacker also posted an ad on a well-known hacking forum offering to look up the personal details of any Argentinian user. Faced with a media fallback following the Twitter leaks, the Argentinian government confirmed a security breach three days later. In an October 13th press release, the Ministry of Interior said its security team discovered that a VPN account assigned to the Ministry of Health was used to query the Renaper database for 19 photos, quote, in the exact moment in which they were published on the social network Twitter, unquote. Officials added that the, quote, Renaper database did not suffer any data breach or leak, unquote. And authorities are now currently investigating eight government employees about having a possible role in the leak. However, the record contacted the individual who was renting access to the Renaper database on hacking forums. In a conversation earlier today, the hacker said they have a copy of the Renaper data, contradicting the government's official statement. The individual proved their statement by providing the personal details, including the highly, highly sensitive tramite number, I hope I got that right, of an Argentinian citizen of our choosing. And then a quote from this hacker, he says, maybe in a few days I'm going to publish the data of 1 million or 2 million people, unquote. And that's what this hacker told the record. They also said they plan to continue selling access to this data to all interested buyers. When the record shared a link to the government's press release in which officials blamed the intrusion of a possibly compromised VPN account, the hacker simply replied, quote, careless employees, yes, unquote, indirectly confirming the point of entry. According to a sample provided by the hacker online, the information they have access to right now includes full names, home addresses, birth dates, gender info, ID card issuance and expiration dates, labor identification codes, tramite numbers, citizen numbers, and government photo IDs. Argentina currently has an estimated population of more than 45 million, although it's unclear how many entries are in the database. The hacker claimed to have it all. So yeah, again, very scary. Our governments have tons of information, which, you know, I guess we kind of expect them to, but man, <laughs> we also expect them to keep that stuff under lock and key. This all goes to basic security practices. I mean, I, well, I'm sure we'll get more information on this, but we got to lock this stuff down. We've got to have, you know, defense in depth. We've got to compartmentalize this data so that not everybody can get access to this stuff. I don't know exactly what happened in this case, but I am pretty sure that there were some cybersecurity best practices that were not followed. All right, next up, and this is this is from 9to5Mac because they quote the New York Times, which I do not have a subscription to, but it's, it's a short article and it, it's kind of funny. I'm going to have to kind of give you some direction because there's a lot of like indented quotes in this article. Uh, so I'll have to kind of call those out as they come up. But let me just read this article uh, from 9to5Mac about their iPhone being hacked. A New York Times journalist covering the Middle East has described the experience of his iPhone being hacked and the security precautions he now takes as a result. Ben Hubbard says there were four attempts to hack his iPhone and that two of them succeeded, with all signs pointing to the use of the NSO's Pegasus spyware. Our NSO guide explains the background, and this is where they kind of quote themselves here. They say, NSO Group makes spyware called Pegasus, which is sold to government and law enforcement agencies. The company purchases so-called zero-day vulnerabilities from hackers, and its software is said to be capable of mounting zero-click exploits, where no user interaction is required by the target. In particular, it's reported that simply receiving a particular iMessage without opening it or interacting with it in any way can allow an iPhone to be compromised with, with personal data exposed. NSA sells Pegasus only to governments, but its customers include countries with extremely poor human rights records, with political opponents and others targeted. All right, that's the end of their quoting of themselves. Back to their article, they say... Apple fixed one of the key exploits used by NSO, but the company likely has others as the cat and mouse game continues. Ben Hubbard writes that spyware experts Citizen Lab checked his iPhone, who confirmed four separate attacks, two of them successful zero-click ones. And this is a quote from that report. It says, As a New York Times correspondent who covers the Middle East, I often speak to people who take great risks to share information that their authoritarian rulers want to keep secret. I take many precautions to protect these sources because if they were caught, they could end up in jail or dead. As it turns out, I didn't even have to click on a link on my phone to be infected. To try to determine what had happened, I worked with Citizen Lab, a research institute at the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto that studies spyware. And that's the end of the little inset quote. The first two attempts were via text message and WhatsApp message. These would only have worked if Hubbard clicked on the links and he was too savvy to fall for that. But there's no way to prevent a zero-click exploit. And again, this is another sub-quote. It says, 
Bill Marzak, a senior fellow at Citizen Lab, found that I had been hacked twice in 2020 and 2021 with so-called zero-click exploits, which allowed the hacker to get inside my phone without clicking on any links. It's like being robbed by a ghost. Based on code found in my phone that resembled what he had seen in other cases, Mr. Marzak said he had, quote-unquote, high confidence that Pegasus had been used all four times. And that's the end of that little indent quote. There was also strong evidence suggesting Saudi Arabia was behind each of the attacks. NSO has twice suspended the country's use of Pegasus over abuses. Hubbard says that he is now even more cautious, keeping the most sensitive data, his contacts, off his phone. And here's another quote from Hubbard. He says, I store sensitive contacts offline. I encourage people to use Signal, an encrypted messaging app, so that if a hacker makes it in, there won't be much to find. Many spyware companies, including NSO, prevent the targeting of United States phone numbers, presumably to avoid picking a fight with Washington that could lead to increased regulation. So I use an American phone number. I reboot my phone often, which can kick out but not keep off some spy programs. And when possible, I resort to one of the few non-hackable options we still have. I leave my phone behind and meet people face to face. Okay, so I don't know how much I have to add to that, except that yet another story of this NSO group and their Pegasus spyware. And honestly, I, I guess what I would add to that is spyware just should not be a legitimate business anywhere on the planet. And this isn't going to apply to most of you. I mean, most of you are not journalists or dissidents or activists or whatever who might be targeted by, you know, nation state actors. So this is not something that, you know, the average person needs to worry about. But it's still a very troubling trend, and again, it's just a business model that should not be allowed to exist. All right, now for some good news. This is from an article from Ars Technica. Again, like most cases, it's not the full article. I just picked uh, the parts I wanted to read. But there's some really interesting stuff in here. So for context, this was written on October 22nd. Four days ago, the Revil ransomware gang's leak site, known as The Happy Blog, went offline. Cybersecurity experts wondered aloud what might have caused the infamous group to go dark once more. One theory was that it was an inside job pulled by the group's disaffected former leader. Another was that law enforcement had successfully hacked and dismantled the group. And this is a quote from Alan Liska, who is a ransomware expert. He says, quote, Normally, I am pretty dismissive of law enforcement conspiracy theories, but given that law enforcement was able to pull the keys from the Casilla attack, it is a real possibility. Rebranding happens a lot of time in ransomware after a shutdown. But no one brings old infrastructure that was literally being targeted by every law enforcement operation not named Russia in the world back online. That is just dumb, unquote. Well, apparently, whoever relaunched Revil wasn't the brightest bulb. Last night, Reuters reported that several countries working together took down the ransomware gang using one of the criminal organization's favorite tactics, compromised backups. Though the FBI isn't commenting on the matter, private sector cybersecurity experts and a former U.S. official confirmed the operation, Reuters reports. This is a quote from Tom Kellerman from VMware. He says, quote, The FBI, in conjunction with Cyber Command, the Secret Service, and like-minded countries, have truly engaged in significant disruptive actions against these groups. Revil was the top of the list, unquote. The newfound success against the slippery gang stems in part from the new legal freedom to pursue such criminal operations. The U.S. Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco recently determined that ransomware attacks on critical infrastructure are a national security threat on par with terrorism. That allowed the Justice Department to bring in assistance from the Pentagon and the U.S. intelligence agencies. And another quote from Kellerman, he said, quote, Before, you couldn't hack into these forums, and the military didn't want to have anything to do with it. Since then, the gloves have come off, unquote. Revil was one of the most notorious ransomware gangs in recent years. The group first appeared in 2019, and over the last year it racked up a laundry list of victims. The first was a celebrity law firm that represented Lady Gaga, U2, and Madonna. The firm refused to pay the $21 million ransom, so Revil published some of Lady Gaga's documents. Next up was contract manufacturer Quanta Computer. Revil stole confidential data from the company and published details of two Apple products. In May, the group hacked Colonial Pipelines operations, causing widespread fuel shortages from New Jersey to Texas. And in June, it attacked JBS, a meat processor shutting down plants in the U.S., Canada, and Australia. Finally, in July, Revil hacked software from Casilla, an IT firm. The company's compromised remote management tools were used by 54 service providers to serve as many as 1,500 organizations. Victims of the attack ranged from grocery stores to hospitals, town halls, and businesses. In September, a report by the Washington Post revealed that the FBI had hacked Revil's servers and obtained a universal decryption key, but didn't tell victims for three weeks. 
At the time, FBI Director Christopher Wray testified before Congress that the delay was strategic. This is a quote from Christopher Wray. He says, quote, We make the decisions as a group, not unilaterally. These are complex decisions designed to create maximum impact, and that takes time in going against adversaries where we have to marshal resources not just around the country, but all over the world, unquote. Withholding the key appears to have paid off. The FBI and its collaborators were able to burrow deep enough into Rebel's operations that law enforcement's software remained hidden in backups that were recently used by a gang member to restore operations. When he spun things up again, he unknowingly granted law enforcement access to some of the systems, according to this guy named Oleg Skulkin, who is the deputy head of the forensics lab at a Russian-led security company, Group IB. And then Skulkin says, quote, Ironically, the gang's own favorite tactic of compromising the backups was turned against them, unquote. Okay, so there's a lot of interesting nuances to that story that will be discussed, and I'm sure we're going to learn more about this as time goes on. Not the least of which is that, you know, why specifically the FBI sat on that universal decryptor key for three weeks before giving it out. And, you know, you know who knows how many of these people actually paid ransoms during that time? You know, or are they going to get any of that money back somehow? But in the end, I think that the takeaways here are, first of all, we are really stepping up our efforts against ransomware and cyber attacks in general in the United States. We have crossed a Rubicon. We have basically... <laughs> given the green light to our intelligence agencies and some of our other law enforcement agencies to really get involved and do some active hacking back. And in this case, it appears to have definitely paid off. And of course, just the icing on the cake was, <laughs> we, I guess we had somehow infected some of their systems and, and these guys, like anybody, you know, make backups of their systems, but they had backed up an infected version of that system. And when they were taken offline and tried to bring everything back up using backups, they brought up backups that were infected by law enforcement. And that was apparently what had led them get back in and take them down completely. So a very interesting story. And let's hope that what this really means is that we're really going to start fighting back against some of this stuff now. And the gloves are off, as the person in the article said. We'll see what ends up happening based on that. I hope this isn't just the beginning of a massive cyber war, but I think at this point we can't just sit on the sidelines anymore. So strap in, folks. Who knows where this is going to go from here? All right, next up. Of course, you've all seen the, the news articles that Facebook has decided to change its name to Meta because they are going to be focusing the future on what Mark Zuckerberg is calling the metaverse, which, by the way, is a term he did not coin. We'll talk about that a little bit in this article. And so, yeah, I don't really care that they changed their name. I, I, I certainly think part of this is a marketing distraction. There's been a lot of really bad press lately on Facebook. So, you know, making a big, bold move like this takes away from some of those other headlines. I, I, I would be shocked if that was not behind some of this. And of course, we'll never know for sure because it's all in Mark Zuckerberg's head. He has more than a 50% stake in that company. So whatever he decides is what goes. But this article from Inc.com has a few points in it. It, it lists five, but I'm not going to go through all of them. Where he kind of talks about Mark Zuckerberg's idea of the metaverse and why we should be kind of troubled about how Mark is thinking about the internet and Facebook's future. So anyway, I'm not going to read all five points, but uh, let me read a few of these from this article from Inc. On Thursday, and this would have been last Thursday, at Facebook's developer conference, Mark Zuckerberg outlined his vision for the metaverse. Of course, the details were somewhat lost in the midst of his announcement that the company he founded in his Harvard dorm room was changing its name from Facebook to Meta, in an attempt to better define its mission as it moves beyond its core social media apps. And this, of course, is the author saying this, not me. I definitely have thoughts about the idea that Facebook is changing its name, but those will have to wait. There is a far more important thread to pull on, which is what Zuckerberg had to say about the metaverse and why it should concern all of us. And... He does each one of these points by quoting something that Mark Zuckerberg said and then picking it apart. So the first quote is, I believe the metaverse is the next chapter for the internet. First, a quick review of what we mean by metaverse. Well, actually, it's what Mark Zuckerberg means. Originally, the term comes from a dystopian novel called Snow Crash by Neil Stevenson, which I have read, which is a great book, about people who escape a crumbling society by entering a metaverse where they can connect to people and share experiences. The basic idea is that instead of picking up your iPhone to send a message to a friend to meet you at a movie theater, you'd put on a pair of glasses and quote-unquote attend the movie together, virtually. That's a drastic oversimplification, but the bottom line is that the metaverse is coming in some form or another. 
When it does, I'm sure some of it will be interesting. That said, I'm not convinced that it will be a permanent fixture of our daily lives, especially if it means strapping a computer to your face. Even if the metaverse is spectacular as tech companies promise, I still don't think any of us should be particularly excited about it being built by Facebook. Obviously, Facebook is wildly successful as a business, but that success has come at a huge cost. Over the past few weeks, it has become more clear than ever that Facebook is aware of the cost, but chooses to ignore it in pursuit of the bottom line. If you can't manage the platform you've already built, it's probably not a great idea to build an even more expansive one. All right, his next quote from Mark is, quote, This is not the way we are meant to use technology, unquote. Maybe the most revealing aspect of the metaverse, according to Facebook, is the way Zuckerberg feels about how technology should be used. During his keynote, he explained it this way, and this is a quote from Zuckerberg. Here we are in 2021, and all our devices are still being built around apps, not people. The experiences we're allowed to build and use are more tightly controlled than ever, and high taxes on new creative ideas are stifling. This was not the way we were meant to use technology, unquote. Basically, Facebook has to play an Apple sandbox, and it doesn't like that. In response, it's building its own, where it makes the rules and can't be told, sorry, you can't keep collecting people's information without asking their permission, because that's inconvenient and affects the bottom line. Of course, Zuckerberg is frustrated that there is a middleman between himself and users. The metaverse is mostly an attempt to build something that isn't centered around the smartphone, because Facebook, now known as Meta, doesn't control the smartphone. That means that as successful as it has been, Facebook doesn't control its own destiny. Zuckerberg's vision of how people use technology is about just that, by breaking away from Apple's control over the iPhone. And then one more quote from Zuckerberg here, it says, quote, a future where, with just a pair of glasses, and then it just has ellipses and unquote. In the keynote, Zuckerberg described a future where you can have those immersive experiences, quote, with just a pair of glasses, unquote. Zuckerberg expanded on the idea in, a, in an interview with Ben Thompson from Stratechery. And again, this is a quote from Zuckerberg. He says, quote, I do think that for augmented reality, for example, one of the killer use cases is basically going to be that you're going to have glasses and you're going to have something like EMG, which stands for electromyography, and I'll explain that in a minute, on your wrist. And you're going to be able to have a message thread going on when you're in the middle of a meeting or doing something else and no one is even going to notice, unquote. It was striking that Zuckerberg's killer use case of how people might interact with the metaverse involves sending text messages to someone while having a face-to-face -face conversation with someone else. So basically, the metaverse is the same as the regular internet, except it's less obvious that you aren't paying attention to the person in front of you. I'm just not sure that's the future we've all been promised. All right, so I had to look up EMG, uh, electromyography, and uh, I found an article from The Verge, which I'm just going to quote from here briefly, which will give you the idea. And it says, Facebook has offered a glimpse inside its plans for a new augmented reality interface based on a technology from Control Labs that's spelled CTRL, the startup it acquired in 2019. In a video, it shows off wristbands that use electromyography, or EMG, to translate subtle neural signals into actions, like typing, swiping, or playing games like an archery simulator. And... For that to make sense, you'd have to see the picture that went with this, but someone's kind of virtually pretending to pull a bow and arrow, but because they've got these wristbands on and this system is monitoring signals from your hands, it figures out that, that that's what you're doing. Anyway, the bands also offer haptic feedback, creating a system that's more responsive than basic hand tracking options. These bands could track the nerve signals your brain sends to your fingers while you're typing. So you can type on a virtual keyboard without physical buttons. And unlike a normal keyboard, the bands could slowly adapt to the way you type, so they can learn the way your fingers move when you're making common typos, then automatically correct them and capture what you probably meant to type instead. Eventually, you could perform the same typing-style gestures by thinking about moving your hands instead of actually moving them. Facebook wants to further streamline user interactions by relying on artificial intelligence and augmented reality glasses, which it announced was working on last year. And this article is old enough that those glasses are now a reality. You can now buy Facebook glasses that have built-in cameras, and we will definitely be talking about that in my best and worst gift guides list for 2021, uh, which will probably be in a couple of weeks. So I will save that for then. But I think for me, the big takeaway from this article is that Facebook is really not liking the fact that Apple is in its way. It's an app on your phone, but that phone is increasingly restricting what it is allowed to do and basically cramping Facebook's style. So 
We've already seen that Facebook has now released these Facebook glasses, uh, which they partnered with Ray-Ban. These things have a built-in camera in them and speakers. Uh, again, we'll be talking more about that later, but the idea is to <laughs> kind of record everything you do and eventually have this augmented reality experience. But Facebook is also making a wearable. I can't remember if this is already out or not, but they're making a watch, a smartwatch, and that smartwatch is going to have a camera in it too. And so, yeah, I mean, <laughs> Facebook really, really wants more information about all of us and Apple and others are just getting in the way. So now they're going to start making their own hardware and try to get all of us to wear these devices to eliminate the middleman and just basically get direct access to all sorts of highly personal information, including, you know, video, audio, location, biometrics, you name it. That is scary. Very Halloween themed today. Okay, moving on. I wanted to talk about this because I, I think it's something that's been very popular lately and and it really kind of exposes why you've got to be careful about how you implement things and make it more obvious that just because a certain feature looks the same on different devices and different services doesn't mean they're all implemented the same way. And so this is talking about link previews. And again, that is, you know, somebody shoots you a text message or some sort of a chat app or something sends you something, or even an email, you'll see this in email now where somebody just sends you a link and the email, you know, happily went and prefetched, you know, either the key image on that page or even a screenshot of that page and gives you a little bit of a preview of what that link's going to look like when you click on it. Some of them even replace the link entirely with this image. And you're supposed to click on the image to get to it, which I really don't like because I at least want some idea what this link is going to take me to. Anyway, this is from Mac Rumors. Uh, let me read this article. A new report by security researchers Talal Haj Bakri and Tommy Misk has revealed that link previews and messaging apps can lead to security and privacy issues on iOS and Android. Through link previews, Bakri and Misk discovered that apps could leak IP addresses, expose links sent in end-to-end encrypted chats, download large files without users' consent, and copy private data. Link previews offer a peek at content such as web pages or documents in many messaging apps. The feature allows users to see a short summary or a preview and preview image in line with the rest of the conversation without having to tap on the link. Apps such as iMessage and WhatsApp ensure that the sender generates the preview, meaning that the receiver is protected from risk if the link is malicious. This is because the summary and preview image are created on the sender's device and sent as an attachment. The receiver's device will show the preview as it was transmitted from the sender without having to open the link. Apps that do not generate a link preview at all, such as TikTok and WeChat, are also unaffected. The issue arises when the receiver generates the link preview because the app will automatically open the link in the background to create the preview. This occurs before users even tap on the link, potentially exposing them to malicious content. Apps such as Reddit generate links in this way. For example, a malicious actor could send a link to their own server. When the receiver's app automatically opens the link in the background, it would send the device's IP address to the server, revealing their location. This approach can also cause issues if the link points to a large file, whereupon the app may attempt to download the whole file, draining battery life and hemorrhaging data plan limits. Link previews can also be generated on an external server, and this is how many popular apps such as Discord, Facebook Messenger, Google Hangouts, Instagram, LinkedIn, Slack, Twitter, and Zoom work. In this case, the app will first send the link to an external server and ask it to generate a preview, and then the server will send the preview back to both the sender and the receiver. However, this may pose a security threat when the contents of the link sent are private. Using an external server allows these apps to potentially create unauthorized copies of private information and retain it for a period of time. Although many of the apps have implemented a data limit on how much of any link content to download, the researchers discovered that Facebook Messenger and Instagram were particularly notable for downloading the entirety of a link's contents to its servers, regardless of the size. When questioned about this behavior, Facebook reportedly said that it considers this to be, quote, working as intended, unquote. Copies kept on external servers could be subject to data breaches, which may be particularly concerning for users of business apps such as Zoom and Slack, and those who send links to sensitive private data think nude pictures. The research offers an appreciation of how the exact same feature can work in different ways and how these differences can have a significant impact on security and privacy. So I thought that article was very interesting and eye-opening for a couple reasons. First of all, uh, we take these things for granted, but this little convenience feature, this little, hey, here's a preview of what this link is that someone just sent you, I mean, it can be very handy, right? If I send someone an Amazon link, it's kind of nice when it shows up with a picture of what that product is so I don't have to click on it first. 
But that, that little feature, that little convenience feature behind the scenes to make that work opens up a lot of security and privacy issues. Now, I think it's really fascinating that some of these people like Apple have already kind of figured this out. And what they do to preserve privacy and some security is that they have the sender of the message, the sender of the link, generate that preview. And then that preview is sent along with the message. So if that's done properly, that should preserve privacy. Presumably, the person who's sending that link trusts that link and has already probably visited that link. So it makes sense for the sender of that message to also include the preview of that message, meaning that when the, the recipient gets it, that person's device didn't have to go out and load that link to generate a preview, which may have a privacy or security problem. So they actually thought that through and implemented accordingly. Now, it looks like a lot of other people uh, instead kind of invoke a middleman, which definitely has some privacy issues that might fix the security aspects of it because, you know, that link is actually being loaded by some other computer and not on your device or your computer. But if that link was to something private, all of a sudden now that third party has gotten access to that document or that picture or whatever, and it may be sitting on their server when you had no intention of, them, of anybody but the person you sent that thing to to have. So anyway, I thought that was interesting. All right, next up, I've got a couple articles here about the expanded use of facial recognition. First one is about Delta Airlines, uh, and this is from Yahoo Finance. It says, Delta Airlines, in partnership with TSA PreCheck, today announced an expansion of how it uses biometrics to let passengers drop their bags, go through security, and board their plane by simply showing their face. For now, the newest part of this, the PreCheck bag drop experience, is a pilot that's only available in Atlanta and Delta SkyMiles frequent flyer program members who are also registered for TSA PreCheck. The project builds and expands upon the work the airline has done at its Detroit hub and for its international flights out of Atlanta, but now it includes a facial recognition-powered bag drop experience too. In Atlanta, where Delta and TSA are running this pilot, members of Delta's SkyMiles frequent flyer program, who are also TSA pre-check members, now get their own self-service pre-check bag drop area. There, passengers who opt into the program, which they have to do every time they check into a flight on the Delta app, simply walk up to the new bag drop machines, scan their face, which will validate who they are through the TSA's database, and the machine will print out their baggage label for them. Once they attach the label, they set the bag on the belt, and the newly automated bag drop machines weigh the bag and use cameras to check its size. Uh, and this is a quote from Greg Forbes, who is Delta's managing director of airport experience. And he said this during a recent press event. He said, quote, Our target here is 30 seconds. The way that we're going to get there is not only the technology, the fact that there's no choreography, you don't have to launch the app or look for your driver's license, but also because we're also gathering together people who travel very similarly. From bag drop, it's off to the pre-check line where there's another facial scan and then to the boarding gate for yet another one. If all goes well, you never need to get out a boarding pass or ID, but you should bring an ID anyway, of course. By default, the use of biometrics raises some privacy concerns. Delta stresses that it only takes the image to send it to the TSA to validate your identity. And to be fair, if you opt in to pre-check or global entry, the TSA already knows what you look like and when you travel. Forbes also noted that Delta itself doesn't touch any of the biometric data, but leaves that up to its partners who provide the technology for it. I'm not sure that makes me feel any better. The security of their technology has been validated by the government, but we all know that there's no system that is guaranteed to be 100% secure. Yeah, just see my recent story about Argentina. And again, this next is from the article. It's from the author, not from me. Personally, I have now crossed the U.S. border a number of times this year, mostly using global entry, which at this point fully relies on facial recognition too. It felt a bit odd the first time, but since Homeland Security already has all of my information, it became a non-issue and simply got me on my way to my connection faster. Using the Delta system from curbside to boarding felt quite similar, and not having to touch anything is a nice bonus in the age of corona. Still, not everybody is going to be willing to make these trade-offs. For them, nothing really changes. All of this is opt-in, after all. For now, this is a somewhat exclusive partnership between Delta and the TSA, at least for the current pilot program. Other airlines are surely already working on something similar. United is a likely next adopter, despite its partnership with Clear. And that's, in all caps, that's yet another system for using biometrics to identify travelers. I would expect Delta to expand on this throughout its various customer touchpoints in the airport and others to follow suit soon. So yeah, this... This does bring up some interesting points. The main one, obviously, for me is that facial recognition is spreading like wildfire. It is obviously very convenient, but there are serious, serious privacy and security issues 
with using facial recognition. And we really need to be very, very careful about how we use this stuff. Now, since this program is in conjunction with a federal government agency, it's right. They've already got this information on you. If you've already set up yourself for pre-check or global entry, which I have, then they already have this information. And even if you haven't done that, the passport office has your photo. Your driver's license bureau has your photo. And because I'm a global traveler, my fingerprints are already in databases out there as well. When you travel to some countries, they force you to scan your hand. And it's not like you have a choice. So the hard part about this is in some cases, like this author basically mentioned, the horse has already left the barn. This data is already out there. It already exists. So why not use it? Well, that is a very, very slippery slope. And you can see how it's already spreading from government use to private use. So again, we unfortunately are going to need some sort of regulation on this. And I think a moratorium would probably be a good thing to start with until we can get a handle on the real implications of this and have time to develop best practices around policy and technology. So let me move on to show you how this gets worse. And this is an article from The Verge about using facial recognition in the UK for kids to buy their lunches. A group of nine schools in the UK have started using facial recognition to verify children's payments for school meals. The schools in North Ayrshire in Scotland, I hope I got that right, claim that using the technology is faster and more hygienic than making payments using cards or fingerprint scanners. But privacy advocates warn that the move is normalizing biometric surveillance. And this is a quote from a flyer that was sent to the parents of uh, the kids at these schools. It says, quote, with facial recognitions, pupils simply select their meal, look at the camera and go, making for a faster lunch service whilst removing any contact at the point of sale, unquote. The FAQ sheet for this uh, program says that children's biometric data is stored in an encrypted form and deleted when the child leaves the school. Parents have to opt in for children to use the technology and can alternatively use a PIN to verify payments. David Swanston, managing director of CRB Cunningham's, the firm responsible for installing the technology, and let me just stop right there to say this is a third party that is doing this because obviously the schools aren't going to have this technology. So just understand that it's not really the schools doing this. They're contracting this out. All right. Told the Financial Times that facial recognition cut payment times per pupil to five seconds on average. Swanston said pilots of the system had begun in 2020 and that 65 more schools were signed up to introduce the technology. As reported by the FT, or Financial Times, North Ayrshire Council claims that 97% of children or parents consented to be enrolled. But some parents said they were not sure if children fully understood what they were signing up for and were influenced by peer pressure. Facial recognition systems of various types are becoming more common throughout the world. Schools in the United States have been installing such systems for years, though usually as a security measure. Last week, Moscow introduced facial recognition payments in its metro system, with activists warning that the technology could be used to track and identify protesters. Various states and cities in the U.S. have banned facial recognition, arguing that the technology is frequently biased across racial or gender lines. In the European Union, too, Politicians and advocacy groups are calling for a ban on the technology, arguing that the downsides of its introduction outweigh potential benefits. And this is a quote from Silky Carlo. Uh, she's from the UK campaign group Big Brother Watch, and she told the Financial Times that the Ayrshire school scheme was unnecessary. And she says, quote, it's normalizing biometric identity checks for something that is mundane. You don't need to resort to airport style technology for children getting their lunch, unquote. So I think I've beat that dead horse enough. I think we all understand where I stand on that. So now let's move on to our next story. And this is from vice.com. And we've talked about this before, but it's yet another angle about location data and how it's leaking like a sieve, despite people's best efforts to try to opt out. And again, from vice, it says, Huck, which is spelled H-U-Q, an established data vendor that obtains granular location information from ordinary apps installed on people's phones and then sells the data, has been receiving GPS coordinates even when people explicitly opted out of such collection inside individual Android apps, researchers and motherboard have found. The news highlights a stark problem for smartphone users, that they can't actually be sure if some apps are respecting their explicit preferences around data sharing. The data transfer also presents an issue for the location data companies themselves, Many claim to be collecting data with consent and by extension in line with privacy regulations. 
but Huck was seemingly not aware of the issue when contacted by Motherboard for comment, showing that location data firms harvesting and selling his data may not even know whether they are actually getting this data with consent or not. This is a quote from Joel Reardon, who's an assistant professor at the University of Calgary and the forensics lead and co-founder of App Census, a company that analyzes apps and who first flagged some of the issues around Huck. And he says, quote, This shows an urgent need for regulatory action. I feel that there's plenty wrong with the idea that, as long as you say it in your privacy policy, that it's fine to do things like track millions of people's every moment, and I wonder if that meant movement, and sell it to private companies to do what they want with it. But how do we even start fixing problems like this when it's going to happen regardless of whether you agree, regardless of any consent whatsoever, unquote. In recent years, both Apple and Google have given users more control over which permissions they give to specific apps. In the case of Huck, the Android-level permissions to allow or block Huck-affiliated apps, access to GPS data, are working as expected. But settings within the apps include options for opting out of that location data, then being shared with others. These app-level data sharing opt-outs are being ignored according to the app census and motherboard tests. Huck is based in the UK and claims to collect and process over 1 billion mobility events every day. And it says it sources that data from 161 different countries, according to the company's website. Like many other firms in the location industry, Huck sells access to or products based upon that harvested location data to a range of different sectors, including local governments, financial investors, retail, and real estate, its website adds. In an article from the Financial Times published earlier this month about UK drivers flocking to petrol stations, used data from Huck. Huck obtains the data by paying app developers to include its software development kit, or SDK, in its apps, a bundle of code that transfers location data to Huck. Huck sources data from both iOS and Android devices. Independently, Reardon and AppSensus also examined Huck and later shared some of their findings with Motherboard. Reardon said in an email that he downloaded one app called Network Signal Info and found that it still sent location and other data to Huck after he opted out of the app sharing data with third parties. Motherboard also downloaded the Network Signal Info app and intercepted its traffic. Motherboard granted the app the relevant Android permission to access location data in the first place, but selected a setting in the app that should have stopped the transfer of that data to other companies. Motherboard saw that even when the option in the app settings said no data would be shared with third parties, the app still sent location information to Huck. The data included precise GPS locations of the phone, timestamps, and the name of the Wi-Fi network the device was connected to and other nearby Wi-Fi networks. And this is a quote, apparently, of what the setting was on the app. And the, quote, uh, the setting says, quote, data collection is disabled. There will be no data shared with third parties, unquote. And then the article simply wraps up with the phrase, that was false. I actually find it interesting that they could even figure out what data was sent, because if they could see the data that was sent to this third party, then it wasn't encrypted either. So, so that's a double privacy whammy. So this folks on our Android app, but as far as I know, this would happen on iOS as well. The problem here is this notion of sending it to third parties. So you can give the app access to your location or not, but once you give it to the app, by extension, you're giving it to you know, all these third-party SDKs potentially as well. So when you download that weather app, which or traffic app or whatever, that obviously needs your location to, to do what it has to do, if that app was built using third-party SDKs like this one from Huck, you're probably also turning that data over to this third party. And who knows what they're doing with it? So it is a mess. And again, <laughs> I hate to keep coming back to this, but I don't think we fix this without laws. This has to be illegal. Or there has to be consequences such that when I say I don't want to share my information with third parties, that it's honored. And if it's not, these people get sued and perhaps even face criminal liability. All right, one... One more main article here, and then we'll get to my tip of the week. And this is kind of a callback to something I've been talking about for many times over the years, but it's kind of back in the news with this. And this is an article from protocol.com. It says, the FTC, or the Federal Trade Commission, on Thursday, and I think this is last week or the week before, unveiled a report highlighting that internet service providers, the companies that get you online at home or on your phone, need to be at least as much a part of the privacy conversation as Facebook, even if the government appears hamstrung in overseeing their practices. This is a quote from uh, FTC attorney Andrea Arias, who uh, was announcing the findings on a study they did on AT&T, Verizon, Comcast, Google Fiber, and T-Mobile, as well as some of their quote-unquote advertising affiliates. And he says, quote, Many ISPs in our study can be at least as privacy intrusive as large advertising firms, unquote. 
The report, which was based on 2019 information demands and public reporting, details how some companies make use of extensive granular user data, including mobile app usage, web browsing, search contents, and more. The companies use the data to provide certain services as well as for advertising, sometimes collecting more than appeared necessary to supply services. Notably, the companies disclose very little to consumers about how their information is used. The FTC also found that ISPs often combine customer data from across business lines, products, and services, pulling together information from broadband businesses with information from other divisions such as TV, home security, and even wearables. Some of the broadband providers covered in the report also shared users' real-time location data with third parties, which could go to those giving medical assistance, but sometimes ends up in the hands of others, such as bounty hunters. Some of the broadband providers also grouped consumers together for advertising purposes using sensitive characteristics such as religion, ethnicity, and political affiliation, or proxies for them. And this is according to a report, and I'm not going to say quote-unquote for every one of these, but these were all terms that were quoted in the report, and it says, segments include pro-choice, African-American, Jewish, Asian achievers, gospel and grits, and more. Several of the ways ISPs collect data may concern users, the report suggests, including the combining of several data streams as well as the ISP's ability to ignore user settings and browsers and apps that may block some tracking. Any concern that users might have about these practices, however, likely falls into a regulatory black hole. In most cases, the FCC, or the Federal Communications Commission, rather than the FTC, regulates broadband service. In late 2016, the FCC adopted a rule that would limit the ways in which ISPs could collect and use customers' personal data. Early on in the Trump administration, however, Congress annulled that rule using a procedure that also prohibits the agency from reissuing any substantially similar rule in the future. So I've talked about this before and lamented about how we almost had an ISP privacy rule. Well, we did. It was on the books, and it just had not gone into effect yet. But due to a change in presidential administration, that rule was gutted. And not only was it gutted, but they also put in place some sort of guideline that says you can't bring that rule back. I, I don't know how you do that. That doesn't make sense to me. But at any rate, we've got another administration now, and I'm hoping that we can at least bring that rule back. All right. So now for the tip of the week. I ran across this article in Fast Company, and I've seen many others like it. And it, it just really pings a certain nerve for me. And it's just, it's just fundamentally getting the technology here wrong. And it's confusing issues and it's needlessly worrying people about the wrong things. And then the headline, just, so just the headline of the article was this. It says, beware of unknown QR codes. They could contain malware. So we're going to get into this today. Let me explain to you, first of all, what a QR code is and why it cannot contain malware. QR in the QR code stands for quick response. This was actually invented back in the 90s. Uh, and it's basically a two-dimensional barcode. And barcodes, by the way, go back several decades prior to that. But you've seen these things. They're square, kind of pixely-looking codes. You know, some have more little blocks in them than others do. They look random, but they're not. And kind of the from a technology point, kind of the cool part about it is if you look at them, there's in three corners, not all, not all four, but in three of the four corners, there's tiny little squares. And these guys who invented this stuff went into great lengths to look at marketing images because the original plan of this was a lot of it was for marketing purposes. You know, look at marketing images and make sure that the like the thickness of these lines and the placement of these lines was such that they weren't going to get confused with other parts of an image. And the fact that only three corners have these little these little squares in them allows a scanner to instantly align the way that image is supposed to go no matter what angle you scan it from. And basically, like a barcode, all you know, the placement of all the individual little tiny blocks in the middle of that image conveys data. And obviously, the more of those little blocks that are in there, the more data it can convey. And you've probably seen, you know, QR codes of varying complexity. Basically, the more little tiny squares in the middle of the, the bigger code, the more data it's conveying. But again, the, the whole point of this really was to solve this problem of I, I can click links on a web page. I can click buttons in an app that will take me somewhere else. Hyperlinks, basically. But I can't do that in the real world. If I've got a poster at the bus stop, or I'm handing you a business card, or I've got a little flyer in the mail, or I've got a little sign on my table at my booth, I want somehow to easily 
get you from the real world to the virtual world. And so this QR code neatly handles that. And even though they've been around for like 30 years, they didn't really become a popular thing until A, we all had smartphones that were connected to the internet. And then B, they all, those smartphones all had cameras in them so they could take a picture of these codes. And it actually took a long time for that functionality to be built in. I'm still not sure it's built into Android. It's built into iOS now, where you can just bring up your regular camera app pointed at one of these codes and it will say it will recognize that it's a code and offer to take you to whatever website that code wants to take you to. All right. So now that we know what QR codes are, I want to read one more quote from this article. And again, it's just getting it wrong. It says, clicking QR codes too hastily can risk bringing malware to your smartphone, cautions Albert Fox Kahn, founder and executive director of the Surveillance Technology Oversight Project, or STOP. And he says, quote, if someone just walked up to you on a street corner, you wouldn't just take a thumb drive from them and plug it into your laptop, unquote. Okay, first of all, Stop is doing some great stuff. I This is no aspersions whatsoever on this group called Stop. But that's, again, that's that's a misleading analogy. Yes, thumb drives actually contain data, which means they could contain programs, software, which means they could contain malware. QR codes, and I pause and sigh, <laughs> at least so far, don't contain code. And as I said in the article, I have no doubt that some plucky software engineer will propose updating the QR code spec to include computer code that can directly run on your phone. And that engineer should be ritually shamed and summarily fired because that's a singularly horrible idea. All a QR code is, is a link. What is encoded in that blocky diagram is essentially a link that you can click on. The code itself is not malicious. The code itself is not magic. By virtue of scanning that code, you are not going to be infected directly from the code itself. Now, like any link that you click on, yes, it could take you to a phishing website that's bad. It could try to have you download a file or software from a website that is malicious. But it's not the, it's not the code itself that is doing that. So it's no more dangerous than any other link or button or image you click on that's backed up by, you know, a hyperlink. Now, all that said, there, there are some nuances to this. First of all, yes, this QR code definitely obfuscates what you're going to. You can't look at it as a human and see what link that's going to be. And by looking at that link, you might be able to make a more informed decision on whether or not you actually want to follow that QR code to wherever it's trying to take you. But... It's also important to realize that regular links work the exact same way. When you look at a link on a website and it actually says HTTPS colon slash slash something, that doesn't have to be actually what that link is. You can test that by hovering your mouse over it. And sometimes you will see that the text of the link that they are showing you is actually not the text of the actual link underlying that hyperlink. And then when you use a button or a picture or something else, to make a link, then again, that's basically obfuscating it. Unless you hover your mouse over to see what that's going to take you to, you don't know where that's going. And it's actually worse than that. If you read my article in the blog, you know, Google and some others have actually gone to some really crazy links to hide what links are actually going to do when you click on them. Like if you go, if you're on Firefox and you go to google.com to do a search for some horrible reason, the links that they show you there look real. You know, they'll, they'll show you, they'll give you the title of the page and they'll underneath that, they'll give you the link, the HTTP, whatever link. And if you hover your mouse over that, it will look the same. What they're showing you on the page is what your hover will show you. However, with a little bit of JavaScript, and this is just one way they do this. When you go to actually click on that, there's actually an event for your mouse click action. And in JavaScript at that moment, when you're going to click your, the, the button on your mouse is going down it can at that very last second change that link to something else. And they have done this in the past. And now what they, what they're doing is because you're on Firefox in this example, and you're not on Chrome, they want to track what link you clicked on. So what they'll do at the very last second is they will route you briefly through Google before they take you to your, to the real destination, because they want Google wants to know which link you clicked and what, and where you're going. So they can remember that for the future. All right. So, but it's even worse than that. Okay. So QR codes are actually extremely versatile. We tend to use them mostly for links, but you can actually convey all sorts of other information using a QR code. You can have contact information. Like it's, you can put this on the back of your business card and the link will actually contain your basic contact info. 
You could also use it uh, to set a Wi-Fi password, which is great. This is really good for your guests. I do this for my guest network. I've got a little laminated sheet with one of these codes on it that says, you know, click, you know, scan me to get on my guest network. And it's not just text. It's not just a link. It actually, it's a special format for that QR code that your phone, if it's, if it understands it, will know that what you're doing there is you're trying to set the Wi-Fi password. You're trying to get on a certain network. And so that QR code actually contains the Wi-Fi name and the Wi-Fi password to make it easier for you to get on the local network. Very, very convenient. You can also have a QR code that does nothing more than shows text. And there's an example of this in my blog if you want to try that one out and see what that looks like. There are all sorts of free online QR code generators you can go to right now to generate some funky codes. I've got links to several of those in the newsletter and the blog. And the actual the QR code spec is actually pretty darn cool. I mean, if, you're, if you want to geek out on the technology and get some more information about things I was telling you about, like how, you know, only three of the four corners have little squares in them, and that's all for targeting, and they're, you know, so that the scanner can figure out what the orientation of the code is. There's error correction built into these things, such that you can actually put, like, little logos in the middle of these things, and they will ignore those. It's really actually pretty pretty darn cool. But there are some cases with these where you definitely need to be careful. And again, these are just, in most cases, these are just links. They just take you to websites. But be careful, like, when you're using a QR code to pay for something. Apparently, this is done uh, in China quite a bit. You might see this on food trucks, you know, where you can scan and use Venmo or something to pay them. If I was, you know, a bad guy, I would be printing up copies of those and trying to put them over the top of the real one so that when someone goes to pay that food truck, they're actually paying me, for example. Also, like any link that you click on, uh, it can be used to do some basic tracking of you. Whenever you click a link, certain pieces of information will be sent to that website, your IP address, which will give away your location, and perhaps, you know, identify you. Your browser could be fingerprinted, and so on and so forth. So there are privacy concerns as well, but it's like clicking on any link. And of course, I would be very careful if I used any of these kind of things to go to any website where I was forced to log in, which is... This is true of an email as well. If I get an email saying, hey, there's a problem with your PayPal account, click here to fix it. I don't click that link. <laughs> if I, for some reason I actually believe that, I would just go to the web browser myself and type in paypal.com and log in. And certainly there will be some sort of a notice there if there's a problem. So again, it's the same, it's the same basic hygiene and protocol that you would use for clicking on any link or any button or any image that is backed by a link. It's just important to realize that that is what a QR code is. So treat it the same way. All right, that's the news for this week. Uh, that article that I wrote about QR codes has got some other really interesting stuff in it. You might want to go check that out. For example, if you've ever wanted to be able to scan your own barcodes, there's this thing called a QCAT. That's spelled C-U-E-C-A-T. It's this funky little, literally cat-shaped wand uh, that you can plug into your computer that uh, for cheap, you can buy them on eBay. They they made these things years ago, but there's still several of them floating around out there. I've got one. It's kind of fun that you can use to scan your own uh, barcodes. And basically, it acts like a acts like a keyboard. So when you uh, you go to scan something, uh, your computer considers it a keyboard, and this little QCAT device basically quote unquote types whatever it was that it just scanned. And, and why would you use such a thing? Well, for example, at one point, being kind of the OCD person that I am, uh, I had this app called Library Thing or a service called Library Thing, and I wanted to go through and catalog all my physical books. And so I would go through and I would scan the the UPC code on the on the dust cover, so I could quickly enter them in the into the Library Thing to to get my books in the list. Anyway, there's some more fun stuff there too. So uh, check out the article on firewallstonestopdragons.com. So October is over. October was National Cybersecurity Awareness Month, and I picked that month to do another Challenge Coin promotion. And October is now over. But the promotion technically is still going until Tuesday night Eastern time. So if you want to become a patron and get one of those really cool Challenge Coins, and I have had several more people sign up, thank you so much for doing that. You can still get the Challenge Coin if you do it quickly. Now, I did say <laughs> I did say previously that I will ship these internationally. There are obviously some limits to that. I can't just ship it anywhere on the planet. And there's a really weird one right now that's potentially troubling, and that's Australia. I actually just got a patron sign up from Australia. Thank you for signing up. But apparently the United States Post Office has, for some reason, just said that it can no longer ship stuff to Australia. I have no idea what that's about, but I'm going to have to find out, apparently. 
So whoever, <laughs> if you're listening, if you signed up and you're that Australian patron, I will somehow figure out how to get you a coin and hopefully not go broke doing it. Uh, I've been keeping an eye out for uh, new book reviews and uh, new reviews on the podcast. I haven't seen any. Uh, actually, I, I did see a couple come through, but they didn't actually have text associated with them. They were just stars and they were five stars, which, hey, that's great. Uh, but just again, uh, if I, I'll keep you an eye on those things on a week-to-week basis. And if somebody wants to post a really nice review, I will read it here as a thank you. Next week, we've got a killer interview. It's with a guy named Harry Hursty, or you could just call him Harry. And he is a Finnish security researcher. In particular, he is a, a global guru on election security. And so we had a really long talk about the status of election security in the United States. And it's really, really interesting. And it's super, super important. So definitely tune in for that. That will air next week. And then after that, I think the week after that is probably when I'll have my new show. And my tip of the week will be kind of extensive that week. I'm going to kind of focus on my annual best and worst gift guides for 2021. And just FYI, supply chain issues are real. And I don't want to sound super consumerish, but if you're buying Christmas gifts, if you're going to buy gifts for people, you need to start early this year. Things are going to be out of stock. Things are going to take longer to ship. So you need to be on your game this year, which is one reason why I'm kind of releasing that list about two weeks earlier than I normally would. So anyway, that'll be in a couple weeks. All right, that's going to do it. Go out and get your shots, everybody. Get your booster shots if they're available. I just got mine. Help other people to get their shots. Get your flu shots too. Those should be available now. And let's get ready for the holidays. Till next week, everybody. Stay safe out there. And don't get caught with your drawbridge down. 